Welcome to episode two of Transit Matters, your source for transportation news and analysis in Boston and beyond. My name is Jeremy Mendelson, and I am your host. On today's show, I sit down with Somerville Bike Committee Chair Alex Epstein to talk about some of his work on uh, bike, uh, pedestrian, and large vehicle safety efforts that uh, he's been doing a lot of research into. And uh, also, we have some a little bit of news this week. Uh, not a whole lot, but I'm going to possibly start to dig into the uh, the parking controversies, uh, the idea of, of uh, selling parking on the street uh, and uh, by by the city and uh, by third parties. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And we have uh, some listener feedback to share. Uh, I'm very excited for that. Just a reminder that you can find more information on this show as well as anything you hear about on this show and me and my work at transitmatters.info. Uh, and over there, you know, we will post links to uh, whatever we talk about today, uh, if I, if I uh, have wrote it down properly. And uh, I want to encourage you to get in touch with your feedback, your uh, questions, comments, suggestions for show topics and or guests. You can write to feedback at transitmatters.info. Or if you go on the website, uh, there is a page, something to the effect of contact me or contact us, and you can... Uh, Go there and send a, fill out that form. You don't if you're if you're uh, feel that email is obsolete, you can you can do that as well. Uh, we're on Twitter at Transit Matters and uh, also on Facebook at Transit Matters if you uh, prefer those things. So uh, sit back, stay tuned. Uh, we will be right back with Alex Epstein. This is the Transit Matters Podcast. Uh, welcome back. I'm here sitting in uh, Harvard Yard with Alex Epstein. Hi. Uh, how are you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm doing good. Um, we're just we're just hanging out here, and uh, I was commenting I like these chairs. These, uh, it's like, uh, I guess a couple, what, a couple years ago, they put the, some movable chairs. Yeah, that was the Harvard Common Spaces uh, project, which happened uh, conspicuously after the Times Square the famous pedestrianization of Times Square, we, we got the, uh, in effect, pedestrianization of Harvard Yard. Well, more, more accurately, places to sit for pedestrians in Harvard Yard, because it used to be that you only walked through it. And that's important, because, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to sit down. Um, of course, we also apologize for a screaming baby in the background. Uh, nothing I can do about that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we wanted to come, and I uh, wanted to talk to Alex, because uh, you are the chair of the Somerville Bicycle Committee uh, and have been for a while, and I've worked with you a lot uh, through Livable Streets stuff, and um, I, I know you've been doing a lot of research on uh, large vehicles in, in the city, and I uh, wanted to kind of find out what's, uh, what's going on with that. Sure, Jeremy. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, I am the chair of the Somerville Bicycle Advisory Committee, which advises the, the mayor... Uh, the mayor's office of the city of Somerville in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, quite a few of, most of the initiatives are on education and, and infrastructure and, and policy. Um, and uh, one, one area that, that has been of interest to me has, um, has actually been almost, I'd say, a fourth area, which is vehicle safety. So we can educate, and, and you know, taking a step back, if, if we think about the safety of, of people who walk and bike uh, and making that a, a safe option for everyone. Um, we can educate people who drive and people who walk and bike. That's that's one approach. We can build the physical environment in a way that people use it safely and it's just intuitive. Uh, it, it, you know where you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to behave without having to think or be educated too much about it. Um, you can have policies, and you can enforce them, um, which goes hand-in-hand hand with education. You have to know about a policy for it to work. Um, but then there's another element here, which is not just the built infrastructure, but, but the vehicles that, that operate and, and share it with people um, who bike and walk. So the motor vehicles who share space with people who bike and walk. Um, and when I say that, I do mean not just the, the cars. Yes, cars are 90 
5% or so of the vehicles on the road, but there, there's that roughly 4 to 5% of vehicles that are large trucks and buses. And now, if you've ever biked or stood on a corner and watched a large truck pull around, they have a very different set of operational, let's say, challenges as far as seeing you and, and sharing the space with you uh, safely. Um, and Some are nicer of, than others, of course. Except, <laughs> that's that's. Uh, I mean, it's just you know, yeah. as somebody who drives a drives a large vehicle. I don't, I don't drive a big uh, you know tractor trailer, but I mean, I drive a vehicle that's it's pretty large and you know does require large turns and special blind spot mirrors and things like that. Right, and I you mean, don't have a rear uh, a rear window. I that's right. When you're, yes. you're driving that that large van. Yes. Uh, so you might be familiar with some of the some of the challenges of, of driving those in a city environment because uh, you can't see behind you you have to rely on mirrors as, as the driver of a large vehicle um, and a van may not be as big a problem but on many large trucks you, you may not see someone standing in front of you if that person is in front of the hood and is shorter than say five feet tall um, so anyway I, an interest of mine is, is large truck safety and, and the reason for this is that if you look at the history in Boston, the last nine cyclists, uh, people who, who biked and, and, and were killed on the streets in the Boston area, eight, eight out of the nine involved trucks and buses, not cars. Um, only one of those, in fact, involved a car. If you look at New York City, the statistics are are, are a little bit, bit more robust, and they're similar. You've got 3.6% of vehicles in New York City that are trucks, and one-third of the bicyclists killed in New York City were killed by trucks or buses. So that's that's a 10 to 1 over-representation. So when you see that kind of a thing where, where there's a small segment of, of the vehicles that are having a large impact on safety, in my mind that says we have a real opportunity to focus on, on having a big impact with relatively small change. Um, so anyway, that's where I'm coming out of, Jeremy. That's, yeah, it's interesting to think about that because, um, you know, when you're biking around, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it can be can be a little uh, scary and intimidating, you know, with these large vehicles and a lot of people. I think a lot of this comes down to just just understanding of what, you know, sort of sort of understanding what, what others, uh, the perspective of others and, you know, how everybody interacts with each other, you know, what is... Um, what is this person seeing and doing and, you know, what is this, you know, and looking at the, you know, talking about buses in particular, I mean, you know, you, you, the driver on the on the, on the the bus, if you ever take the bus, you see the half the time the driver is like fiddling with the fare box and like trying to drive off, trying to talk to passengers and at the same time and you're like, you know, I mean, so that, where does that put you at, outside the bus? I think that's, it's interesting to, to think about this stuff. Yeah, it is, it is a little, it can be sobering to, to think about uh, a, uh, any, anything up to an 80,000-pound, 40-ton truck operating on a city street, and then the driver can be, can be as distracted as someone driving a, a car. There are cell phone calls, there are GPSs, there are all kinds of other distractions that occur. And sometimes uh, that, that kind of distraction or the wrong decision at the wrong time can, can, can mean life or death for other people on the street. Now, truck drivers as much as anyone else don't want that to happen and I, I feel like often they can be caught between a, a rock and a hard place they have to make deliveries they have to share the space with with um, people driving and biking and logging they may not they don't want to put anyone in danger uh, even less than than we do so than everyone else on the street so, and I've really, heard that, so really you want to yeah, yeah. I've heard that from, you know, just around the internet, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that, you know, the, especially the drivers of these really large trucks, uh, you know, they don't want to be driving in the city, but it's just kind of the, the model of, of modern trucking, I guess. I don't, I don't really understand all this, but it's just that the, the model of, of modern trucking is it makes them do these things, whereas they really just want to do, you know, they, they figure these large vehicles, they don't really feel like, you know, they're, they're well suited to making these kinds of, you know, in-city deliveries. And they more like want to do like you know city to city kind of stuff, like, like you know highway kind of thing. Yeah, there's a big difference between the the over the road and, and local delivery type of uh, driving. Um, and I've heard from I've heard that some some teamsters uh, 
are just worried day to day. They they have to drive a big rig. That's that's what they're given to go deliver to to a pharmacy or supermarket in the middle of, of Boston or Cambridge. I think they would rather be driving a smaller delivery truck that that gives them more maneuverability and more ability to see people uh, that they're sharing. But that's that's the situation. So we until we change have an ability to change what the vehicles are. I think it's the opportunities in making the vehicles we do have safer. Um, so, and, and that, you've that's, been doing some stuff on this front. I mean, what are what are we what are we learning in terms of things that we can do as cities to, you know, make the vehicles safer? For that, we uh, we look to to Europe and Asia and other places in the world for for what so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And the idea is. There are likely practices uh, in, in other places we can we can uh, borrow and maybe even make better. Um, so one of those one of those is, is certainly with the blind spots. We already talked about blind spots. Uh, New York City has already borrowed one idea from Europe, which is the convex crossover mirrors. Uh, in 2011, after a number of pedestrians were killed in a row and truck drivers couldn't see them standing directly in front of the truck. Um, this became law in 2011. So now all trucks registered in New York State that operate in New York City have to have these convex crossover mirrors that allow drivers to see someone standing right in front of the truck. And like a like for a school bus, you can uh, you can see that person in front. And, and uh, there's evidence it's already saving lives. Um, so that's important. So getting you know getting mirrors everywhere, like in the front, the side, and the back, and you know you get, that's you, important. You get you get mirrors. Um, if you look at a European truck today, and you sit in the cab of a European truck, you'll see four, maybe five mirrors. And on some trucks, you'll even have these wide-angle lenses installed on the side windows that let you see kind of like a fishbowl view uh, all around, below the cab, behind the cab. And it starts, at some point, it can become a bit of a funhouse effect, and, and you start wondering how many mirrors can a driver really process. But that's this is the sort of approach you're seeing. The next generation, if you look at Europe, is they're just redesigning trucks altogether and making them more like a like a helicopter cab, where you have rounded rounded cab walls, larger windows, and eventually the point is to eliminate blind spots, so you can see as a driver of a truck where the cyclists are, where pedestrians are, and minimize the, uh, the, the danger of running them over. Uh, and they're putting devices. I, I've seen some, a couple of trucks lately. It's in these devices, like, on the side, just, like, so that you don't, you know, you don't get under the wheels. So that's, that's the other side, Jeremy. So ideally, in the first place, you eliminate blind spots. You have perfect knowledge as a driver of where everyone is. Real, reality is that's not going to happen for a while. There will be there will be crashes for the foreseeable future. You want to make sure those crashes are not deadly crashes. You want fatalities to become injuries, ideally injuries to become minor injuries. Um, one of the basic tools for that is is, a, is is underride protection, side guards on trucks, um, and those have been those have been standard in, in, in European, Asian, and, and even South American countries. Uh, for as many as uh, 30 years. So they're not even a new technology. If, if you look at Boston, Boston's taken a leadership position on this, as of Portland and um, Washington, D.C., and, and, uh, and New York City um, have, have taken to this as part of their Vision Zero campaigns to eliminate traffic fatalities. They've noticed that a disproportionate number of, of, of the deaths involving trucks are when a pedestrian or cyclist hits the side of the truck, not the front of the truck. For the front of the truck, you have the crossover mirrors. That's one one possible solution. But it's it's those turns. When you have a truck turning and the rear wheel trails inside of the front wheel, or you have a cyclist traveling next to a truck, a cyclist is doored, a cyclist is thrown into the truck. What happens? They fall under the wheels. It's a grisly but unfortunately all too common reality. Um, and those are very deadly crashes. So what you do with the side guard is you shield that, that space between the, the front axle and the back axle, and now the person, instead of falling under the, under the wheels and being crushed, is by design deflected 
will probably still incur injuries, will probably still end up needing medical attention, but they're not hopefully going to be killed. Um, these are the kinds of common sense um, retrofits that, that cities are already starting to do in America, following we, the lead of Europe. What are you, you said Boston is, uh, is in leadership is playing a you know being a leader in this and what what are uh, what are cities doing like are we are we talking about city fleets or is there something else? Yeah, so these are city fleets for now. Uh, Boston uh, has outfitted uh, about 19 of its public works vehicles with side guards. Uh, just as a quick pilot demonstration, you can see them rolling around downtown all the time now uh, with the yellow uh, railings basically under the sides of the garbage trucks and the dump trucks uh, and the flatbed trucks. Cambridge has done that for six six trucks. Somerville and Newton have done a truck each. Uh, so it's really regional. And uh, D.C. has done it on uh, something like two dozen trucks and is going to do it for the rest of the fleet. Same for Boston. Boston, very excitingly, has also, um, is going to have its contracted garbage trucks follow suit. And in the, um, in the uh, contracts that were awarded recently, that's going to be a requirement is that they implement side guards on the uh, dozens if not hundreds of garbage trucks that are contracted out for residential uh, and I believe commercial waste collection in in the city. Um, So now you're talking about a whole new um, a whole new um, level of of, uh, uh, deploying these these side guards. Um, Interestingly in D.C., as of 2008, all the municipal trucks were supposed to get side guards, but they didn't until this year because of congressional funding issues. Uh, <laughs> because DC is, of course, uh, funded it's Congress. by Congress. It's always Congress that has to get in the way of everything. <laughs> well, I didn't say that, but uh, I, I'm not disagreeing. It just seems that way. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a it's a whole other discussion. <laughs> um, so you know, we were talking about trucks. Um, I know at least a few of the people who who were killed in Boston in recent years have been by buses. And uh, in particular, I know the 39 bus has been implicated in a couple of incidents. Yes. And we're talking about, you know, 60-foot articulated buses. Yeah. have the accordion thing in the middle. Um, you know, and, and we're talking about, you know, a couple of bad spots down on Huntington Avenue. Um, is this something that the T is, is interested in? Or do we know that the T is doing stuff, to taking steps to, uh, to mitigate these things? I'm, I'm, I cannot speak for... Th- for the tea, uh, uh, but uh, just thinking about the nature of the vehicles that, that buses are and that trucks are, side guards are, are designed for a particular kind of a crash, for a particular type of vehicle, trucks with high ground clearance. Um, a truck with low ground, ground clearance doesn't need side guards because a person who falls into the side of the truck isn't likely to end up under it. Now, that's also true for the buses that the T runs. They tend to have a ground clearance that's quite low. Nevertheless, people... About a foot, about 12 to 14 inches off the ground. Now, if you're already on the ground, you could end up under the bus. And there actually is a device that has been tried um, and and widely implemented on several other transit systems in the U.S. It would be very interesting... I would like to see the MBTA try it. Uh, it's called the wheel guard. It's 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 a different type of shield. Uh, it's a cow catcher, really, for someone who falls under a vehicle, because it doesn't keep someone from falling under the vehicle, but it is designed to push them out of the way of the wheel when the vehicle passes over them. So, this has been implemented on the entire metro bus fleet in, in Washington, D.C., the San Francisco Muni fleet, um, the CTA fleet in Chicago. I was so, waiting for one I was waiting for one that has winter because otherwise, you know, they always say, oh, we have snow, it's different here. And then you said Chicago, okay. And I understand <laughs> that uh, at least one other large city has avoided installing them on the, on the premise that they get snow. But that's not possible because Chicago gets more snow than that city. Uh, and Chicago has implemented wheel guards on buses. Um, actually, Massport has piloted wheel guards on two of its new buses. So you can actually see them uh, occasionally at Logan Airport. It's, it's just a black um, piece of, of rigid plastic that's uh, installed in front of the back wheel of, of the bus. Um, and it literally pushes you out. 
Uh, you can Google um, S1 Guard, G-A-R-D, and they have a great stuntman video showing this guy who jumps under the bus repeatedly and is not killed because he's pushed out of the way. Yeah. Uh, pretty much worth a thousand words right there. Yeah. So what, what happens if you're like, I, I could see the situation where, you, you know, you're in the crosswalk kind of thing, but like, what happens if you, you know, can you get pinned between this and the curb or between this and like a parked bike or something like, you know, like just seeing situations where you might get like pinched or is that like you're going to get hurt anyway kind of thing? I don't think there's ever a guarantee that you won't get hurt if you're under a bus. Um, I think the idea is, to, again, to turn fatalities into injuries and injuries into smaller injuries. Um you think about it if the bus is, is riding adjacent to the curb you have nowhere to go but if the if there is space adjacent to the bus that you can be pushed out into i think intuitively you have a much better chance of surviving yeah without knowing more details it's possible that the uh the two bus related fatalities in the past year um could have been prevented yeah and because that brings us another thing which is that um, as we have a, see a, a dump truck go by, with the, I'm looking at all that space underneath the, the yeah, wheel, and that's uh, an open frame rail. That's, that's uh, huge. The axles, uh, I mean, you could get in, you can get down and like lie down there, and you could you could like crawl under there. It's that much space under there. Most trucks have a ground clearance well, of that type over four feet tall, wow. so that's uh, tall enough to, to fall under yeah. pretty easily. No. So I mean, because one thing I was just thinking of is is that. Um, you know, especially with, with buses, you know, they're constantly, you know, bikes and buses are constantly yep. interacting, constantly, you know, leapfrogging, pulling over, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, and many of us have had this situation where, you you know, the bus comes by and, like, passes you and tries to get into the stop and you're sort of you're sort of stuck in there. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's maybe more of a, probably more of a training issue, I, I would think. But I, I don't know. We, do we know anything about, about um, bus and truck driver training? You know, is there anybody that's like working on this, trying to get uh, you know better training for vehicle drivers, and and also for, for maybe for bikes as well? Maybe just you know trying to explain to bikes, you know, what it's even just like. I always had the idea of just like bring a bus out to some community event and just like let people just sit in the in the thing, you know, bring it up to a bike event or whatever, and just have people just like sit in the driver's seat and be like, oh, you know, it's like and like you know, put some cones out there or something, and just like just so the guy can really understand like what's going on inside the bus. Uh, is anybody doing anything like that? Uh, yes, Boston did that a couple of, actually in 2013 last year, they brought an MBTA bus onto City Hall Plaza and let people sit in it, and, and they had a person biking around the bus continuously in a loop. You could see where the driver can and cannot see a bicyclist. And it is sobering to to know firsthand just how many blind spots the bus does have and how easy it is to be invisible to a bus driver when you're bicycling near the bus. Uh, New York City does this um, possibly every year during their summer streets on Park Avenue when they uh, have the street festival. They, they bring out some of the DOT trucks, um, and they put they, they let residents sit behind the driver's seat, uh, behind the wheel of the truck, and, and again, see where the blind spots are. So, yes, there's, there is that education, but it's only reaching... A small fraction of the population. Ultimately, you need the, the the commercial vehicle education to catch up. And to this point, um, I know Mass Mass Bike, Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition has has tried to tried to get some traction on this issue. And unfortunately, the um, it goes above the state. Um, commercial vehicle training originates at the federal level. So what you what you need in my opinion, is for the commercial vehicle, commercial motor vehicle training curriculum to actually add the words bicycle and pedestrian into their manual. Today, they don't exist in the manual. Really? Not at um, all? No. So, the, uh, in fact, uh, it's determined by... Um, there, there's an industry organization that essentially gets, gets approved by Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration... Um, and that, that determines the national curriculum for, for CMV education. Today it doesn't contain the word bicycle in it. So you can, you can um, get a commercial vehicle license and, and never, never see that word. Um, to me, that, that is a glaring opportunity, glaring gap and opportunity to, uh, to uh, close that, 
Yeah. Close I mean, that some, safety gap. We made some progress on the, you know, in the, the the car, you know, the non-commercial motor vehicle arena in terms of educating people. It's still, we still got a long way to go, obviously, and people only get trained once, which is part of the problem. But um, you know, I think the, the way that large vehicles relate with bikes and, and pedestrians, and, and of course, you know, skaters and horses and the whole range, is is different than the way that cars interact. Um, you know, and I know for like we're in rural areas, like a big problem is like a you know a truck will pass. Uh, will pass a bike that's, you know, either t- too close, or, you know, they'll give, like, three feet, but it's, like, you know, a truck at 50 miles an hour needs more than a few feet, and then they'll, like, merge in too soon, merge back too soon, or they'll do things like that, which is, like, you know, things that just show that they clearly just don't understand what, uh, you know, how to properly react to that situation. So. Yeah, and we, we can dream about all kinds of ways you could address that. I don't know which of these would, would ever happen first. Um, like you mentioned, we only get trained once how to drive and then we have a lifelong license to do it uh, without ever getting retrained so tomorrow i don't know crazy example <laughs> let's say we decided to start start operating on the left start driving on the left hand side of the road decided okay we're gonna we're gonna drive like the british do tomorrow would we actually need to get new licenses would we actually have to take a new road test i'm not so sure Okay, so that's a ridiculous example. Now you take it down to what's yeah. actually going on. We have an entire new set of bicycle safety laws enacted in Massachusetts in 2008. Other states are passing these as well. New York City is passing new Vision Zero-related safety acts. Um, for example, yielding to pedestrians and making it a misdemeanor to, to touch a pedestrian. Um, drivers who, who took their road test before 2008 here, before 2014 in New York... They're not expected. They're not. They're not accountable for knowing this. So when are we going to get license renewals? We're in the 21st century. What if we had online renewals for licenses that involved at least answering some questions correctly before you could renew your license, based on new laws that have been enacted in the last five years? Right. What What is standing between us and those kinds of low-hanging fruit? Um, I, I guess that's my question to the ether here. That's the open question, and if you have thoughts, you should uh, you should email us at feedback at transitmatters.info. And uh, we have to go because uh, I have to go to work. It is time for me to go drive my truck. So uh, <laughs> Drive it safely, please. All right, th- I will. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so thanks for doing this, Alex. Uh, I really appreciate this. Um, any last things you want to tell people? Google SideGuards on the Internet, and uh, I think you'll find that this is a rapidly expanding area. Uh, of interest as cities uh, sign on to the uh, fatality, the, the philosophy that the traffic fatalities are entirely preventable. I think that's going to be hand in hand. It's going to go hand in hand with truck safety. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll happen more and more as more as fewer people drive and, and more more people uh, know what it's like to bike and walk. That'll that'll come. So. Empathy is part of the part of the solution for sure. Knowing what the other side feels and experiences. Yeah, great. Uh, It was a great place to leave it. Thank you, Alex. And uh, we will uh, talk to you again in the future, I'm sure. Thank you again to Alex for speaking with me about urban large vehicle safety. And uh, and this is something that remains in the news. Uh, Just last week, there was another... uh, I didn't find anything online about it, but uh, somebody sent me... uh, The place where I work is located in Sullivan Square, and so that's why this is a place that pops up on on my radar all the time. Uh, And, you know, somebody sent a picture of... uh, of a bike that had just been hit and appeared to be like, you know, in the middle of the friggin' rotary. So, uh, yeah, so there was that. And there was also, uh, in the South end, uh, I think it was Mass Ave and either Columbus or Tremont or Washington, one of those, one of those streets over there. Um, there was a truck that, uh, right hooked to the bicyclist and, uh, um, it was apparently, uh, it was a hubway bike. So, uh, yeah. So, but, uh, Apparently, the, uh, the latest reports indicate that the person was uh, was conscious when transported by ambulance. So, uh, hopefully, they were not killed. But these things do remain in the uh, in the spotlight, and, uh, and they need to be. And uh, we need to be taking measures. Uh, not only you know things that uh, you know things like like mirrors and better uh, truck equipment uh, and, and bus equipment, but also uh, you know behavioral elements too. You know some of these garbage trucks like driven like maniacs around here. And uh, we really need to address some of that as well. Um, and Alex made a number of great points, so I won't expand too much on that because I want to keep this moving along. Um, what I want to talk about now is, uh, well, just a little bit of news. Um, it 
for those of you who've been paying attention to the uh, you know livable streets stuff in the, the past week or two heard uh, some some uh, developments on the uh, parking situation uh, apparently Boston has been starting like preliminary conversations about uh, charging like demand-based pricing for uh, street parking and uh, this is one of the things that really inhibits uh, transit use and transit speed and uh, liability and a number of other things it's just nothing encourages driving more than uh, the availability of free parking um, and that's something that uh, we'll be talking much more at some point on the show about um, but I'd recommend for uh, for starters I'd recommend uh, the high cost of free parking by uh, Donald Shoup who's a professor of uh, urban planning I believe city planning at uh, UCLA in Los Angeles and uh, so I highly recommend that as a primer uh, I also did an episode on uh, parking uh, the particular focus on residential parking in uh, my critical transit podcast uh, i believe it was episode 14 uh with interview with professor rachel weinberger who uh, was talking about parking uh and residential parking in new york so uh, th- that would be a, a good listen as well uh, but this is an issue that keeps coming to the forefront because you know car drive has been saying for years oh it's not enough parking not enough parking well it turns out that the more parking you create uh, the more traffic you get and you just never solve the problem uh, san francisco and a couple of other places have been trying experiments where they price parking more expensive basically make it more expensive um than than what we have now so that this way it becomes something that people don't really want to a lot of people don't want to pay for and they're gonna they're gonna go to alternative modes of transportation uh but then parking will still be available the idea is that parking will still be available there'll be you do it so there's enough spots available in a given block or whatever so that you know people can make uh, deliveries in, in trucks or if you you know you got to carry something really heavy and you really need a car then you know you can go and do it you might have to pay for it but uh, the spot's going to be available so this is this idea that that we're you know better managing uh, what we have and uh, so it's good to see the city start start talking about that at least and uh, I think we should all push that forward um, let your council people know that this is something that you know you think is really important and also um, there has been some news and there's been at least at least one uh, app developer came out with a with an iPhone app that basically lets you say so lets a driver say you know, like essentially broadcast that you know I'm leaving this parking spot or I'm in this parking spot right now and uh, it's going to be available at you know 7 p.m. Uh, and essentially ask for like you know seven or eight dollars like I will wait there until you arrive and you can take this spot and you know and it's it's sort of like you know some it's weird because like some of the a lot of transportation wonks are sort of very happy to jump on this like app like you know ooh, private you know enterprise whatever and uh at the same time it's you know i'm I'm totally with the city uh with the mayor mayor walsh is saying uh this is ridiculous you know you're you're selling a public good um and that's that's what this is and um if the city wants to really think about uh how we're pricing the street space is valuable public space then you know we should be encouraged to do that and that's great but uh for some you know private person to go and just just make a buck off of the uh off of this you know something that's basically being given to them uh, free or at low cost is is uh, i don't think it's really appropriate but of course you could make the argument that this is what we've been doing all along you know i mean the streets are essentially free right uh you know the gas tax pays a small portion of the of the cost of ma- building and maintaining the highway system the state highways like the freeways and stuff but all of the local streets are funded entirely by local revenues so it's, it's almost entirely property taxes and you know whatever sometimes the uh you know the, the uh highway you know mass die mass dot will uh you know do a big recon- roadway reconstruction project and that's all coming out of tax funds as well so um you know, it's, it's in a sense we're providing these free streets and and businesses that that have you know lots of car parking. I mean, they're relying on that as well, and and to some extent, anybody relying on foot traffic is is relying on that too. Um, but obviously, the different modes have different problems, and and you know, cars are, are the worst of all, uh, obviously, as, as we know. So, um, so I just thought I'd throw in two cents on that. I think that it's it's promising to see this this stuff being talked about. Um, but yeah, I think it brings this realization that. You know, we really need to do something about the traffic in Boston. I mean, I drive a, as, as, as Alex and I mentioned, I, I drive a truck for work. And I'm driving around the city, around Boston and Cambridge mostly, uh, sometimes Somerville. And, 
you know, it's it's just the traffic is is just brutal, and there are times when it takes me twenty to thirty minutes to drive two blocks, and it's just there is just no real reason for it. Um, and, and when I say that, it's it's that you know from the perspective of somebody who is is trying to provide a, a public service. Um, you know, I work for a public a contract to a, to a public agency, and it's you know when you're trying to when, when you're thinking about you know if if we're not going to completely ban private cars, then you know we have to at least give the others priority. Um, you know, we have to think about delivery of of goods, uh, provision of services. Um, you know, especially buses. Buses and trains need to be at the top of that line. You know, how long does the green line take, right? Because it sits in all the lights and everything, and buses have no priority whatsoever. And, you know, buses are the ones that, that move people. And if we're ever going to move outside this, this just gridlock and just, you know, trying to create a, a better city to live in and, and have things and people move around easier, enhance access and mobility in the city, we really need to do that. But we really need to look at uh, restricting car traffic because that's that's this this barrier there that we have so i won't say too much more about that but i would encourage you to to look at uh, information on congestion pricing experiments that have been tried in london and stockholm and uh, new york is talking about it again and i think it's something that's really really valuable to to look at in, in boston um i was talking to somebody about this we had an in-depth discussion a couple of weeks ago and if i can remember who that was i will have him on the show and we will we will do an episode on on this kind of stuff time for some listener feedback now uh we heard here from josh who writes in uh, about the green line and a brief discussion on bridge uh i i won't read all of this but um, try to get to the most important points. Uh, we went back and forth for a little while here. Um, and so what Josh was saying that, that um, you know, we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss Bridge uh, because one of the one of the big benefits of something like this is that uh, it is, you know, being a, being a small private entity, it is quick to adapt. And it's sort of like an experiment, right? You know, trying to fill these gaps in the transportation network. So when we talk about, um, I guess for anybody who hasn't didn't listen to the uh, last week's show, um, Bridge is this this new uh, bus company that's that's kind of sprung up in recent months, uh, trying to basically focus on like rush hour shuttle type services for you know like uh, they have one from Coolidge Corner to downtown and it's one from somewhere in Brookline over to Kendall Square, trying to you know fill in gaps in MBTA trips that are either difficult on existing transit or just just don't really or to just take a long time, uh, or have some other deficiency. So Josh is saying this is good because it's a it's an experiment, and uh, the MBTA as a big institution, uh, government bureaucracy takes years or decades to address things if they do it at all. Um, and I've said before that the last time we saw any kind of significant public transit expansion in within the the cities of Boston, Cambridge, Somerville is is probably the 1980s. Uh, if if not before, so you know it's good that we see things changing and and adapting. Um, even though this is you know really only good for people who are willing to slash can afford to pay the uh, premium for it, but you know hopefully it'll it'll demonstrate some of the needs and encourage the T to kind of follow along. Um, and and also you know he talks about ha- having carriers like bridge along with some of the hospital and, and school and other shuttle providers sort of come together and, and you know and work together for uh infrastructure improvements things like bus lanes and signal priority and and uh, you know working with the t to sort of provide service better um and it maybe move us he, he says you know hopefully that could that could help move the mbta closer to the the brt vision which has never been realized with the the silver line and uh um, it's a crosstown bus route. It's a CT one, two, and three. Um, CT is interesting. He brings up the CT routes because, um, and obviously the Silver Line. You know, we all know the Silver Line a big missed opportunity. Um, you know, they gave it. They, they painted some bus lanes, but they didn't put it where it really needs the bus lanes, uh, right downtown. And uh, you know, the Silver Line suffers from. You know, still is still plagued by heavy traffic congestion and you know terrible bunching because of that. Um, and so you never really got any kind of dedicated right of way. 
at least on the uh, Washington Street and, and the place where it did get dedicated right away on the on the waterfront. Uh, you know, it goes at 10 miles an hour. So uh, that's kind of a fail over there. But I think the CT, these crosstown routes, if um, I don't know how many people are actually familiar with these because they're not marketed well and they're just, uh, I always did, they always seem pretty empty to me, um, especially the CT1. Uh, but the CT1 is kind of like a perfect example of like what, you know, with a few tweaks, it could be a perfect a perfect model for limited stop bus service in Boston. Um, you know, this, the, the regular Route 1 runs very frequently. It goes from Harvard Square all the way down Mass Ave all the way to, and then it goes off to Dudley Square uh, from the south end. And, you know, it's local. It, makes it stops every couple blocks. Uh, it's slow, bunching, all that stuff. And uh, I think this my cat clawing at the door um <laughs> and uh sorry about that if you can hear that and anyway so the ct1 was designed as part of this urban ring idea that you know we're going to provide limited stop service but it and it goes from boston medical center which is kind of in the south end goes all the way up mass ave and it ends at central square so it doesn't go the full route and i think that's a major deficiency there where it uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it just doesn't really integrate with the with the regular Route One, and, and also it it runs every twenty five minutes and only on weekdays. So, you you in order for a limited stop bus service to really be useful, it has to be frequent enough and reliable enough that you're going to want to wait for it. Um, otherwise, you just see the one come first, and you're just going to get on that. And I think a lot of people don't even know what the CT one is. So that being said. I think that's a, a big thing, and, and Josh says, you know, I value time savings and frequency, uh, flexibility, in other words, over getting a comfy seat. And for me, there really isn't enough time savings by taking a surface route downtown during rush hour to make it worth paying extra. So he's talking about the, this bridge shuttle that goes from uh, Coolidge Corner to, to downtown. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's basically it's a shuttle, so it only makes those two stops. And theoretically, it might be faster than the Green Line um, with all its stops. But um, you say what he's saying is it, it really isn't, or if it, or if it's, uh, you know, if it is, it's not not significant. So those interesting interesting thoughts there on the on Bridge. So thank you, Josh, for getting in touch. And if you have thoughts on Bridge, uh, please do get in touch. Uh, we we encourage that and want to hear from you. And uh, we did uh, actually we did get a follow up from from Josh. Um, I was, you know, writing back, and and uh, and he wrote about the Green Line as well. And one of the things that, um, well, a couple of things, that, quick things that he was talking about. He was asking about the the power, and you know, we mentioned that there are issues with electric supply for the Green Line. Um, it's sort of like the the fuse or the circuit breaker in your house, right? You know, you put a little too much on it, and it just blows. And it's gotten worse and worse over the years as we have more and more technology. And we, you know, when the Green Line started, there wasn't air conditioning, and so you know, it's been upgraded a little bit over the years. But um, you know, it really needs needs major upgrades, and so that's been in discussion. As far as I know, it still remains in discussion. Um, but what Josh is asking is whether the power issue can affect three car trains, and uh, and, and and also four car trains, and you know. It, can these these long platforms accommodate four car trains, and and would that help? Um, and so, I guess what I say to that is is uh, you know number one the the power is an issue for the three car trains, so I wouldn't expect to see a lot of them. Um, they have to be really careful to make sure that you know trains don't come too close together, and there's a lot of coordination involved. And it's sort of um, it, with the new signaling, it it might make more sense. Um, but right now. As we mentioned, as, as Mark talked about last week, there are no more cars for the Green Line. So if, you know, essentially what they're doing is when they want to make a three-car train, they, essentially you take three two-car trains and you split them up and now you have two three-car trains. You didn't increase the capacity at all. Um, the only thing you may have done is make it, they make the congestion a little bit less because now you have, you know, a little bit less bunching and, you know, the whole thing is moving you know three cars just theoretically could absorb more people than two cars but that's only true if you had if you had extra cars it doesn't apply in this case but you know when you have it's like think of it this way right like think of like the number one bus um you know it's say instead of a bus every 10 minutes you just had like you know a big red line train like once an hour right 
theoretically to absorb more people and it would be really reliable and you know you wouldn't have bunching because there wouldn't be such variability and you know when people are coming out it wouldn't be like you know you get 60 people on one bus and then fewer people on the next bus and then you know all of a sudden a group of 30 you know school children shows up for the following bus and just throws things off but at the same time you know if you ran the if you ran the number one bus once an hour then you know nobody would really use it because uh, you can walk from back bay to central square in about half an hour or 40 minutes something like that so i don't know maybe longer than that but i don't know i've done it at night um when the t is not operating and it is doable so it's just something to think about is like would it would that really be useful enough because you because what happens with with uh, the three car trains is that it, they're going to run a little less frequently because you know you're just having fewer train sets if you will um and as for the four car trains uh same thing goes um the platforms most or if, or if not all the platforms can accommodate the four car trains i don't i don't see this as something the t is doing and i think before they would even give that thought the power issue would have to be resolved but would things run better if you had all four car trains running half as frequently? Um, let's say, you know, in the rush hour and the B line, you have a four car train running every 10 minutes instead of a two car train every five minutes. Would that make a difference? Well, maybe, but um, in some sense, you get you get less, in some sense, you, you just get less frequent service. So in some sense, the service is worse. Uh, it depends. It sort of. This is where it sort of comes down to value judgments. You know, what do you value in in the service? Do you want it to come frequently? Do you want it to stop in front of your house, even if it takes forever because it's stopping in front of everybody else's house? You know, what do you want in transit? And that's sort of something that that comes up here. Um, I think the biggest issue here would just be that you know we don't have enough we don't have enough cars, and uh, you know, of course, if you if you really looked big picture here and you you said well we have you know we don't we don't have enough cars right now to increase the service but if we ran all four car trains and then you know and, and we we retooled the the system and did the you know, the uh, proof of payment fare collection that we talked about off board fare collection so that you only need one person to drive the whole four car train well then you have a whole bunch more operators that that can are available to to do other things and if your trains are moving a lot faster then you need fewer trains because you need just if the train trip is taking 20 percent less time well then you know it's going to be able to turn around and, and do another run faster and so you'll need fewer trains for the same level of service so what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to increase service and you'll have people to drive those trains um, another way of thinking about it is that you know if we're not increasing the number of cars and you know we have the operators um, my thought is that we can use those operators to either to be extra operators to either do inspections or increased bus service in places that that that's needed but of course you know thinking about the green line if you were to increase green line service to so say you have more you have more cars more throughput um the, the big question becomes what do you you know if you can get those those uh cars through faster then the big question is you know is where do you put that that increase in service you know you got to try to run like little shuttles downtown or are you gonna are you gonna get to the point where you're you're trying to increase service so much on the on the above ground portions that then you know you can't cram all those cars downtown and you know where are you going to be your biggest increases because your trains are not going to move any faster through the downtown segment with proof of payment because you know people are already paying fare gates and they'll probably continue to do that or if they don't either way you know that you're not going to get any benefit in in passenger boarding and any time savings from that so you know what that becomes a question is that then you know do you get to the point where we really need to look at what i think personally is the you know is sort of the way we may be moving in the future which is that we need to deal we may need to deal with that central subway and the above ground portions of the green line in separate ways with like separate sort of technologies right so you might have you know you might uh, what i really would love to see was just upgrading the green line central subway just making that all just just like the red line you know these big cars big long platforms big stations just made built for lots and lots of people and you know and, and just just absorbing the people it's like if you think about it this way you think about um think about like north station at a at, at a game yeah, after a, a game lets out a bruins game or a celtics game or concert 
and compare that to Fenway Park, Fenway Park being just this nightmare for like hours and hours. Um, at North Station, if you go on the ground there, yeah, the green line comes through and it's just like a, it's mobbed. But, you know, then a couple of orange line trains come through and the crowd is gone. And it's just that ability to absorb large numbers of people and have them move on and off and about the train much more easily. I think that's something that really needs to be thought about. And what that brings about is, is, you know, are we going to extend that all the way out to Brighton and Newton and uh, and Huntington? Or are we going to just, are we going to say, okay, these these little trolleys are going to continue to operate, but they're going to feed the subway line. Are we going to do something like that? you know, where, where are we going to sort of, I like having these discussions, but at the end of the day, it's like, what are, what are the practical steps that we can take? And are we going to continue to make these little baby steps or, you know, in working with these constraints that we have, or are we going to think big picture? Are we going to really push for some big investments in, you know, and are we going to really, um, have another, you know, a little dig, if you will, and build another subway line. That's kind of where I guess a good place to leave it. Um, if you have thoughts, comments, suggestions for topics or guests, and I hope you do, the website is transitmatters.info. You can email us, feedback at transitmatters.info. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Critical Transit. Uh, and my other website, criticaltransit.com, if I ever get around to updating that, uh, I guess I will let you know. Um, so yeah, go there, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you and your thoughts and um, we'd love to bring more discussion about these important issues to uh, to the show and people. And uh, yeah, uh, that's it. All right, I'll talk to you in about two weeks. Or, yeah, something like that. forgot a uh, big happy birthday to the mbta um it, the mbta is 50 years old as of this past weekend so uh yeah it's uh, very different than what it was 50 years ago when it took over a whole bunch of uh, well it took over the mta which had taken over a bunch of private carriers anyway that's beside the point um also if you're interested in uh, bike stuff uh, august 13th a uh, beacon street cycle check celebration um check uh, livablestreets.info for more info on that and uh, last Friday of the month is Bike Friday. 